Secretary, you talked in your remarks about there not being anything in the Constitution about separation of church and state, which is a phrase, of course, that Thomas Jefferson used writing to Baptists like Governor Parson. Uh, uh, there is the Establishment Clause, and so I guess I wondered if you could flesh out what ways do you see there being at least some separation coming from the Establishment Clause? Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way Editor and President Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is a network of people and churches working together to spread the hope of Christ. For more than 25 years, CBF has been driven by its mission to serve Christians and churches as they discover and fulfill their God-given mission. Join the fellowship at work in long-term global missions in more than 25 countries. Join them too as they strive to form healthy congregations and support the ministers that serve them. Put your faith to action. Visit cbf.net to get connected. popular political punching bag these days is the phrase separation of church and state. Yet often those who like to attack the phrase don't actually understand what it means or where it came from. I saw this recently when I had an opportunity to ask a question to Ben Carson, U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, during a visit he made to Jefferson City, Missouri. But before we get to that exchange, let's first set the stage. Secretary Carson was in town to speak at the Missouri Governor's Prayer Breakfast. It's a common event that happens in many states across the country. It's similar to the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. that will include the President of the United States. Across the country right now, there are these types of prayer breakfasts that have been happening because this is the type of year when the state lawmakers return to their respective capitals to start a new session. And so often in that first week, there will be a, a prayer breakfast, a, a quasi-official government prayer meeting. And while these events are generally run by a non-official, non-government institution, they often seem to really blur the church-state lines as we're not really sure, is it a government event? It seems to be run by the government, even if it's not technically. And so already these events are a bit problematic as we're thinking about issues of church and state. And perhaps you know the type of event. They'll include a scripture reading from a Republican lawmaker. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I loved you. You also are to love one another. And they'll include a scripture reading from a Democratic lawmaker. Psalm 50, 15, and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you in your life. All in the name of being bipartisan. And then they'll usually, of course, include prayer, since it is in the name. They also usually include breakfast, also in the name. This year happened to include a prayer by Kent Parson, who is a Baptist pastor and brother of Missouri's Governor Mike Parson. The prayers, of course, will pray for wisdom for the leaders of the state, the governor and the lawmakers. We ask especially today that you bless the leadership of our great state here, Pray especially for Mike this morning. Ask that you will continue to guide him. Bless the legislative body as they deliberate from time to time. 
May they look to you for direction and for guidance. Often at these events, the governor will make a few remarks, generally talking about faith, and then also has that opportunity to introduce the keynote speaker. In this case, on January 9th, it was Governor Mike Parson, a Baptist, who was introducing Ben Carson of HUD. Well, what a great day to start off, you know, the governor's prayer breakfast. I'm, I'm trying to decide, do we really need it at the beginning of the session? Or do we need it the first week in May when we're finished up? You know, I'm trying to think what's the best timing on that. Uh, but what a great honor and privilege it is to have the Secretary of HUD to be here with us today and have Ben Carson here today. I mean, what an honor that is for our state. And, you know, the many things that, that, that I've learned uh, about Secretary Carson over the years of watching him from afar, I guess I want to say, is just what kind of man he is. You know, there's no question uh, he's a smart guy. There's no question about that. I don't know if you're around him very much and you read his bio, it's definitely very impressive. If you read how he was brought up, his family, you know, he definitely had a humble beginning to be where he is. But you know, the one thing I think about the Secretary, every time I see him, even this morning when I first met him, there's one thing you never doubt about him. You never about worry about he is a man of faith. He puts his faith on his sleeves and he wears it every day. And I'm proud you do that, sir. I'm proud you represent that for all of us. As is typical for these types of events, Carson was pretty explicit from the beginning about his Christian faith, citing scriptures, and kind of developing some religious themes for how he was going to be speaking and including how he was going to be framing thinking about matters of public policy and politics. We're gathered here today to seek God's guidance for the year ahead. And in addition to the scriptures read earlier this morning by Senator Schatz, Browden, and Walsh, as well as Representative Hart, I'd like to start by reading three verses that will put into context what I want to share this morning. Mark 3.24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. James 1.6, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. And Proverbs 11.9, with their mouths the godless destroy their neighbors, but through knowledge the righteous escape. Together these texts represent unity, faith, and reason, a trinity of challenges that our country faces as we begin the 2020 year. But then later in his speech, after spending quite a bit of time talking about the need for unity and working together, he then went on a tirade uh, against those who believe in separation of church and state. Now, I want you to listen to the exchange, and we'll unpack it in a moment, because he seems to not know exactly what that phrase is, where it comes from, or what impact it really has on people. And remember, he is a U.S. cabinet member, one of the highest government officials in the land talking about this constitutional concept. God has been involved with this country from the very beginning, and that's one of the reasons we would not do well to kick them out of our country at this point in time. We need to be thinking about the faith part of our country. A lot of people say to me, 
not supposed to talk about faith. Somehow that violates separation of church and state. It's unconstitutional. Can I tell you something? There is nothing in the Constitution about separation of church and state. Not one word. It was a Supreme Court decision that brought those words in. And it only meant then that the government is not to control the church and the church is not to control the government. Didn't mean that you had to get rid of your faith and that you couldn't talk about it. Something that is such an important part of us. Think about it. Our founding document talks about certain unalienable rights given to us by our creator. AKA God. The Pledge of Allegiance to our flag says we are one nation under God. Most courtrooms in the land on the wall says in God we trust. Every coin in our pocket, every bill in our wallet says in God we trust. It's in our founding documents, it's in our pledge, it's in our courts, and it's on our money. But we're not supposed to talk about it. What in the world is that? In medicine, it's called schizophrenia. Now, while it served to be an applause line for Secretary Carson, this idea that there's nothing in the Constitution about separation of church and state is a sloppier way than that phrase is usually said. Usually someone says you won't find the words separation of church and state in the U.S. Constitution, which is true. But constitutional concepts can be found even if an exact phrase is not. For instance, the phrase religious liberty or religious freedom also not found verbatim in the U.S. Constitution. But I'm quite confident that Secretary Carson would not claim that there was no constitutional principle for religious liberty or religious freedom. So instead, he tries to claim that there was some 20th century Supreme Court case that brought this phrase to light, which ignores the much more famous origin story of this phrase as it was used, that phrase, separation of church and state, was used by then-President Thomas Jefferson, perhaps we've heard of him, he wrote that Declaration of Independence, that founding document that Carson quoted in his remarks, Jefferson used that phrase to describe the constitutional system that he saw in place through the Constitution in the United States. So Jefferson was saying, this is the way our government is. Constitutionally, there is a separation of church and state. And he was using that phrase not to attack people of faith, but he was actually using it in a letter to Baptist in Connecticut. And, and he was using it in that letter because he knew that they would agree with him. Because in many ways, he was just borrowing language from the first U.S. Baptist, Roger Williams, who had talked about the need of a hedge to protect the garden of the church from the wilderness of the state. And then the second thing that Carson does after he's misconstrued the origin of the phrase separation of church and state is that he then seems to pretend like what it means is that you can't talk about your faith in the public square, which is not what separation of church and state is. That would be a separation of faith and politics, which is something fundamentally different from saying that we're not going to officially establish a religion, our religion, any religion. But this bait-and-switch allows him to attack a concept by creating a straw man, a weak version of what the principle actually is. And then once he's knocked down that principle, then he can promote policies, as HUD and other branches of the U.S. administration have been doing recently, 
that actually do violate the historic understanding of separation of church and state as they go towards that establishing of religion and not merely making sure people have the freedom to talk about their faith in the public square. Now, I bring those up because I had an opportunity then to question Secretary Carson after his speech. There was a, a brief opportunity for members of the press to go off into a side room as people were leaving, and Carson and Parson were both there. I asked the questions to Secretary Carson. As you're hearing the question, I also allude to Governor Parson. He did not have his own thoughts or had his own answer to what Secretary Carson had said. But you'll hear that Secretary Carson does, when press, admit that, well, there's at least some separation of church and state. And at the point that he's acknowledging the need for at least some separation, then he seems to be undermining his whole applause line ridicule of the concept completely. So here's my exchange with Secretary Carson following his remarks at the governor's prayer breakfast. Secretary, you talked in your remarks about there not being anything in the Constitution about separation of church and state which is a phrase, of course, that Thomas Jefferson used writing to Baptists like Governor Parson. Uh, and, and there is the Establishment Clause, and so I guess I wondered if you could flesh out what ways do you see there being at least some separation coming from the Establishment Clause? The first well, amendment. there is no question that, you know, the founders of our nation came from places where there was way too much involvement of the church with the affairs of the state. Uh, and they never wanted that to be the case, and I don't want that to be the case either. But that doesn't mean that we should preclude the good things that happen with those partnerships that are aimed at improving the lot of the citizens. So while I still think that Secretary Carson doesn't completely understand or appreciate the concept of separation of church and state, I find it interesting that he was willing to admit that, yes, there actually is a need for separation and that, yes, we really were established with the understanding of separation. Perhaps being pressed to answer questions leads one to admit things that you wouldn't necessarily say when giving your nice applause lines on the political stage. So as our lawmakers and governors and other governmental officials are in this busy season of legislating, of crafting new policies, perhaps we can push back against gratuitous attacks on the historic principle of the separation of church and state. Perhaps we can help educate and remind people about both religion clauses in the U.S. Constitution, including the Establishment Clause, that does mean that there should be a separation of church and state. And perhaps we can help people realize that, as founding fathers of the U.S. argued, and as Baptist preachers before that argued, Separation of church and state is good for both. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. If you'd like to learn more about church-state issues and separation of church and state, I really would encourage you to check out resources from the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. You can find them online at bjconline.org. It's a fantastic organization that's, that's upholding the historic Baptist understanding of religious liberty for all which includes a healthy separation of church and state. As always, you can find us at wardenway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you have found this topic to be interesting and you are in Missouri, I would encourage you to check out on February 8th, the one-day Heartland Advocacy and Action Conference at First Baptist Church in Jefferson City, Missouri. We'll be talking about how to be a more effective advocate at local and state government, particularly looking at issues like predatory lending, 
and church date separation. I'll be one of the presenters there at that event. You can learn more and register today for that February 8th event in Jefferson City, Missouri at tinyurl.com slash heartlandadvocacy. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review to help more people to find the show. You can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you'd like to give to support this program, we greatly appreciate it. All you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button, and whatever you give there will help the production of this podcast, as well as our website and monthly magazine. And speaking of our magazine, if you're not a subscriber, you are missing out on even more important Baptist news and information. You can fix that by hitting the subscribe button at wordandway.org. If you have any comments or feedback, please send them to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.